I think it's pretty cool. Listen, I told you about it. We have 21 high school students up at Whiteout this weekend. I think that's really cool. So do please uh, keep them in your prayers. Th- these are some of those times, uh, conferences like this, where I've seen God just really get, get a hold of the hearts of young people. And so uh, we're excited that they're up there. We are launching a new series today called Kingdom and Cross, a continuation of our verse-by-verse series through the book of Luke. We started the book of Luke about a year ago, and we'll, we've been taking it in about 10 or 12-week chunks, and then we'll take about 8 or 10 or 12 weeks to do something else. So we did the book of Ruth, and uh, we just finished our series on love languages, and we're going to dive back in here to the book of Luke. And I love teaching verse-by-verse through the Gospels. It's just so amazing to look at the, at the words and uh, at the actions of our Savior. And so I love this. One of the other cool things about teaching verse by verse uh, through Scripture is that you don't get to skip stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, pastors like to design series, and we like to go through things, and there's stuff that's positive and encouraging and, you know, fun. I mean, Ruth was a ton of fun, and it was funny and all that, you know. And then there's uh, other passages that are a little bit harder. And so today is a passage that's actually a little bit harder. Now, have you noticed that we put off some things in life that don't seem urgent? Have you ever noticed that in your life? They can be things we, we know are a big deal, but we put them off if they don't seem urgent. And sometimes I think the reason that is is because we don't understand the urgency of the situation. There's sometimes where we're in a situation, we just don't understand how important it is, especially sometimes younger in life. We don't understand the importance of the, these decisions for the rest of our lives, right? Um, one time, my, uh, my dad let me drive right after I got my license. I was 16, and my dad let me drive his I think it was a 1976 Jeep Wagoneer. Um, this was, I mean, it was old when, then, you know, but it was a beast. This thing would go anywhere, and uh, it was a tank. I, I really liked driving this thing around, you know, V8. You'd lay into that thing, and it would just go. So I drove that thing around, and I wasn't really, you know, all that knowledgeable about mechanical things. Uh, so one day as I'm driving, a little light goes on on the dashboard in the shape of an oil can. And I think, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe sometime, at some point I should check that out and see what that's all about, right? And I just kept driving. And uh, yeah, you know what happened. A short distance later, the engine seized up. And the whole engine later, the, the Wagoneer was back up and running, right? And, and my father was not particularly happy with me for that whole little escapade, right? Because there's some lights you don't want to ignore. This may be like good for some of you. This may be worth the price of admission here today for some of you. Don't ignore that, okay? Young people, if an oil can light comes on, yeah, just stop where you are, right? There's some lights. Some of you, I mean, I've got a really old car now, and the check engine light's been on for years, right? It's just the way it is, and everything's fine. Um, So some of you, you know, you ignore that light, but you don't want to ignore the oil can light. And so sometimes we just don't understand the urgency of a situation, right? Now, sometimes we understand the urgency. We understand this is a big deal, but we don't feel the emotional weight that we should around the issue until it becomes a crisis in our lives. Maybe some of you have experienced that too. Maybe some of you have put off um, that dental appointment that you needed to make and you put it off and you knew I should probably get that tooth checked out, you know, and it hurt a little bit. And then one day you woke up and you could not get out of bed. You could not move. You know, your whole head was pounding and, and you couldn't put it off any longer, right? I, I, as I was preparing for my message, I got this uh, email. It's a blog by a famous uh, uh, marketing guru, a guy named Seth Godin, very smart guy. He said this, human beings in our culture are wired 
to pay attention to problems that are A, visible, right in front of our eyes, not microscopic or far away. Second thing is symptomatic, that if the problem has symptoms and the symptoms are painful or getting worse, then you have our attention, right? And the third thing, one of the other things that he he said are problems that are status-driven. And he said, this is an interesting one. You don't always think of it this way. But it turns out we like to focus our, our intentions or our attention, rather, on things that will move us up the social hierarchy in some ways, which is why we'd prefer to solve the, uh, you know, get the bigger house or, you know, buy the bigger, nicer car versus pay off the debt that's lingering over there, right? It's also, he says, this is a part of the reason why it was such a, a hard thing for the society to start to curb teenage smoking was because, A, you know, the symptoms were way down the road, um, and then B, there was actually a social hierarchy kind of thing. It was kind of cool, right? And so it wasn't until it kind of became, started becoming uncool in the culture and difficult and expensive that, that, the, uh, that the problem of uh, teenage smoking started to go away. And basically what Seth is saying is that we tend to ignore important things that are critical to our long-term well-being. And the passage we're going to look at today in Luke is going to challenge us to live with a sense of urgency when it comes to living for Jesus. See, some of you might have the idea that, you know, I'll get serious about following Jesus later in life. I'll get serious down the road. I mean, right now I got all this stuff going on, but later on I'll I'll take my faith seriously. And the words of Jesus that we're going to read today are going to show you you may not have that luxury. You may not. And like I started out saying, you know, as we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, you don't get to like skip stuff. And, and this text isn't one of Jesus' kinder, gentler teachings. You know, like, let the little children come to me. We like that one, you know. Or don't judge, don't judge. Like, don't judge me, bro. We like that one, even though it means a different thing than you think it means, you know. But we like that one. We like that. Or blessed are the peacemakers. You know, or Zacchaeus, you come down because I'm going to your house today. And if you grew up in church, like in Sunday school, you, you hear the tune in your head, right? This isn't one of the kinder, gentler teachings of Jesus. This passage should make you pause and really evaluate whether or not you take following Jesus seriously and whether or not he holds the primary place of importance in your life. And ultimately, if that's not the case, what's at, what's at stake? And so... If you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, you can follow along in Luke chapter 12. And we are going to be diving in in verse 35 in just a minute. And since we're dropping in in the middle of the conversation, it's the middle of the conversation Jesus is having. Uh, let me just catch you up real quick. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, on the road to Jerusalem. And he knows he's on the way to the cross. And so as he heads down, he's teaching, he's healing people, and crowds of many thousands gather around him. And so Jesus begins to address first his disciples that are sitting here, you know, the 12, and then a larger group of about 100 disciples, and then the crowd is on the, on the fringes listening in too. And the verses right before this, Jesus goes on, he's teaching his disciples on how to live a life free of worry and anxiety, and how to get your focus on things that matter eternally. And the famous verses that are right before this, and they're not on the screen, but the famous verses that are right before this say this. It says, but seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. In other words, you're worried about all these other things. Seek his kingdom first. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you 
the kingdom. In other words, he's giving you the most important thing you could ask for. And so because of that, sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves or savings accounts. They didn't have them then. Provide savings accounts for yourself that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will never fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That is the context of what we're talking. He's talking about stewardship. He's talking about generosity. He's talking about leveraging your time, your talent, your treasure for the sake of the kingdom of God. Because ultimately, that's where you find value that lasts eternally. He's saying, hey, don't sacrifice 80 billion years you know, in heaven, amazing years for 80 mediocre years of pleasure here. That just doesn't even make sense. And you know, the billions, just because that's about the biggest number you can comprehend, right? Eternity goes way beyond. Saying don't sacrifice eternal things to be focused completely on the here and now. And so that brings us to verse 35. And here's what he says in verse 35. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Be dressed, ready for service. And literally, this, this word means, in the King James, it actually says, gird up your loins, which sounds kind of weird to us today, right? But what it means is, tuck your robe up. They would wear robes in, in the culture. And if you wanted to run, that was pretty hard to do in a robe. If you wanted to, to work hard, that was pretty hard to do in a robe. And so they would actually wear a belt around their waist and kind of tuck the robe up around their waist so they're ready for action. And he says, I want you to be ready when I call. I want you to be ready for action. Keep your lamps burning, he says. Keep the, keep the light on. Be waiting. And, and this is that idea of when your master comes back, you want it to be welcoming. You want it to be warm and welcoming because they would go on a, uh, he, he uses this example. And this is a parable. Actually, we're going to look at several parables as we go through this passage today. And a parable is a made up illustration or a made up story to make a point. He says, hey, it's like your master, a master that goes away to a wedding feast. And at the time, you know, they didn't wear watches. Uh, they didn't have, you know, calendar reminders that popped up 15 minutes before appointments uh, in their phone and all that. You sort of had a rough idea of when this thing was going to start, and you didn't really know when it was going to end. It was a joyous celebration. The feast would last for seven days, partying, having a great time, dancing, singing Hala Nagila, and all that good stuff. Or maybe not. I don't know if they actually sang that then. But you get the idea. And at the end of that, the master's coming home. He's going to be in a good mood. And, and the idea here is you're ready. You're waiting for him. The lamps are burning. It's warm and welcoming. This is the original, we'll keep the lights on for you. You remember the old uh, Motel 6? That guy's voice, we'll keep the lights on for you, right? That's, this is the original. My kids, uh, sometimes I come home. You've probably experienced this too, you know. Sometimes I come home and and, uh, you know, my wife's out running around with the kids somewhere, and it's winter. Now it's getting dark a little later, you know, so that's kind of cool. Um, but it's pitch black. It's cold. You're fumbling with your keys. You're trying to, you know, you got to pull out your flashlight, all that to see. Finally, you get in the house. You're like, hello, is anybody home? Or sometimes I come home, the light's on, and 
they're watching, you know, my little girl's watching, and she comes running up to the door and unlocks it, so I didn't even have to get my keys out, and I come in, and it's like, daddy's home, and I just feel like, wow, you know, and this is that idea. The idea around here is to wait with expectancy, to wait with expectancy. My, my kids, it's fun, when, when they know their friends are coming over, they'll sit, if we don't know, we're like, I don't know, they're coming over in a while. We don't really know when they're coming. Um, they'll just sit oftentimes at the couch and just look out the window and wait, you know? And it's this idea of when are they coming? When are they coming? It's expectancy. And the expectancy shows how much they value the relationship. And the point here is the expectancy shows how much they value the master, how much they understand that this is about you. This is about your agenda. And, and, and my role in this is, is to be a servant, right? You know, my life's about you. I'm here to serve you. My time, my talent, my treasure is yours. Jesus, when you tap me on the shoulder and ask me to, to go do something, to go pray for someone, to get involved in a situation, when you whisper in my ear, I'm going to say yes. The answer is yes, before you even ask the question. And Jesus, if you came back right now, my heart attitude would be one of joy and expectation. I'm waiting for you. And I stayed faithful to the place you called me to serve. I stayed engaged in it. That's the idea here. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 37, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. And then Jesus throws, throws them for a loop. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. We'll have them recline at the table and we'll come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whom the master finds ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak. Jesus said the master will actually serve the servants. What? And Jesus illustrates this beautifully. Just a short time later, you remember this is towards the end of his ministry. He gets down at the event known as the Last Supper and takes the towel, the basin and the towel. And in, in, in do, doing something that only the most menial slave in the culture would ever do, he washes the feet of his servants, of his disciples, in this beautiful display. And the idea here is Jesus is saying, the master actually will serve you. It's this idea of humility, that those are waiting with joy and expectation, faithful to what he's called them to, it's going to be good. It's going to be good for that person. And there's going to be an incredible reward. There's going to be eternal reward. Verse 39. But, uh-oh. Here's where it starts getting a little hard. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let the house be broken into. Now, Jesus, this is a, this is a different illustration. Jesus has moved on to a different one, right? You, must, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. A thief does not announce when they're coming, right? And so Jesus says, the Son of Man, which is his way, it's a, you know, a reference to Daniel, one of Jesus' most, his favorite ways of referring to himself all throughout the Gospels. He says, the Son of Man will come and you're not going to expect him. And, and here he introduces this theme of the, the return of Jesus. And it's one of the central hopes. It is the central future hope and expectation of our faith. 
It's not a secondary or an unimportant thing. And oftentimes a couple things happen in churches um, is, is that either we fixate on end times, you know, and pull out the charts and calculate the, the letters and, and people's names and try to figure out who the Antichrist is, all that kind of stuff. And, and people like to geek out on that. Or we just kind of ignore everything when it comes to the end times and place it almost a secondary importance on the return of Jesus, not really take it seriously. And, and, and that is a huge error because Jesus, he makes it so clear. And John, he says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. That's a promise you can cling to, isn't it? Thessalonians, Paul talks about this. He says, you know, first, your loved ones, this is the hope that you will see your loved ones again. He says, after, after that, after the dead in Christ rise and are caught up with Jesus, he said, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. In Acts 1, Jesus, right after the resurrection, after he's appeared to the disciples for a period of 40 days, he, one time he appears to 500 at one time, he has this moment where the disciples go, Lord, is, is now the time? I mean, you know, you, you died, you rose again. We didn't see any of that coming, but is now the time you're gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, all these hopes, all these expectations, and he goes, hey, it's not for you to know the time or the place that my father has set. That's not for you to know. But go back to the city. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you're gonna be my witnesses everywhere in, this, in the world. You and those that follow after you will take the message of the gospel, take the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And then right in front of them, he ascends up through the clouds. And they're sitting there staring like, I wonder where he went. I, you know, I, I don't know. He disappeared behind that clock. I don't know. Maybe he's just going to get something and he's coming back, you know. Should we wait here? I'm not sure. He said, go to Jerusalem. And they're just sitting here. You can just imagine the conversation. They're scratching their heads. And all of a sudden, two angels appear and go, uh, guys, why are you standing there staring into the sky? He said, the same way he went up, the same way he will come back. That's a sure thing. That's a sure thing. But now you better go obey and do what he said. And that's our call, too. And, and here's the thing you need to understand about this, and this is something that the disciples did, didn't understand yet at this time, is that we live in what we call the time between the times, or we call that the already but the not yet. And here's what that means. The, the big hope and expectation of all the Old Testament scriptures are the kingdom of God, that God himself, the kingdom of God will, will come. And the idea behind this is the king has been born on this earth, and in the coming of the king, the kingdom has come with the king. And Jesus says things like the kingdom of God is drawn near. It's drawn near. It's in your midst, he says. He says, my kingdom's not of this world. He says, you know, if I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We see this theme over and over and over again. Paul says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. That we live in this age where the kingdom of God has come, but it's come spiritually in our hearts and it's coming into this world and it always grows. We're going to see this over the next couple chapters as we read through this big theme that Jesus talks about. A huge theme. And so it's here, and yet it's, it's already, but it's not yet. Meaning the fullness of the kingdom won't come until Jesus' return. 
And it will be at the second coming of Jesus that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and King. And that's what we wait for. But the point that Jesus is making here is I'm coming back and you don't know when. And if you're not ready, you're going to be left with that helpless feeling of not being prepared and being ready for my return. That it it is a sure thing that I will return. I'm coming back, but you don't know when. Has anybody ever been robbed? Yeah, yeah, quite a few of us. Isn't that the craziest feeling? If you've not experienced it, it's, it's, it's surreal. And you, you don't realize what's happened right away. You walk back into the room and, and it's just you realize somebody's been in there that shouldn't have been in there, right? And, and it's this thing, this crazy feeling as you look through and, and you go, oh, it's gone, you know? You figure out what was, what was taken. It's a feeling of violation. One time I was uh, camping on, in the Baja and I drove way down uh, to this place called San Felipe, way down on this little kind of remote beach. I have this old pickup truck, me and my buddy, and we were going on camping, and we park it on the beach and walk down on, on the beach and come back a while later, and the, the back window is just shattered all over the seat. And it, it doesn't sink in right away. You see it, and it's like, what happened? It doesn't sink in. And then, of course, you figure out, uh-oh, somebody broke in. Go look. The wallet's is still there. Cash is gone, right? And it's this feeling of helplessness. It's that, that feeling of, I can't do anything about this. Of, I've been caught unaware. And Jesus says, when I come back, for some people, it's going to be like that. They will have this helpless feeling of loss because they were not expecting and living towards his return. They were living, actually, like he wouldn't return. Jesus says, I'm coming back. You don't know when. Paul says it this way in Thessalonians. Brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write you. Why? Because Jesus says you won't know when. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Thief doesn't announce himself. He just shows up, right? But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so this day should surprise you like a thief. In other words, It'll be a surprise, but you won't be caught unprepared if you're living with the reality that he's going to return. And Scripture teaches repeatedly this idea that Jesus says in this verse. It it speaks repeatedly of it, that you need to be awake. You need to be alert. You need to be expectant for his return. And so the big question really is, you know, what should characterize someone who is living expectant for his return? What should characterize a faithful servant in light of the fact that he is certainly coming back and we don't know when? And Paul has some great things to say. He said this, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Peter puts it this way. The end of all things is near. How near? Don't know. He didn't either. But every day it's nearer. Right? Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. 
And then how does this work itself out in our lives? Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Remember, we've been talking about that over the last couple of weeks. Jesus said, how will they know your disciples? By your love for each other. This is how it works itself out. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. That this is what it means to live that out in the present age, in the time between times as we wait for the appearing of our Savior. We're called to live every day in the light of the fact that he could return today. And that's how it works itself out. So Jesus drops this big concept, scripture on him. I'm coming back and you want to be ready because I'm going to come at an hour when you don't expect. And then in the next verse, Peter asks, I love Peter in the scriptures. He's always asking sometimes not such great questions, other times great questions. But you got to love Peter because he's so bold. He just opens his mouth and says things, right? He's a leader. I I like Peter a lot. I mean, you know, sometimes he he gets himself in trouble. But here he's like, uh, Peter asks, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? Because remember, there's this huge crowd gathered around. He's talking to them. So far, it's all been to these guys, these disciples. Lord, is this for us? Because the thing is, he didn't have a framework for the idea that the Messiah would come and suffer and die and ascend back to the throne of God the Father and sit at the right hand of God and that a period of time would go by before he came back to really fulfill and bring the consummation of the kingdom back. They just thought, now's the time, right? You're here. So they're like, well, I don't know about what you're talking about here, Jesus. You know, come, the Son of Man's coming. I thought, you, I thought you, you keep saying you're the Son of Man and you're right here. So what's going on? Is this like for all these other people? I mean, we've already recognized you that you're the Messiah. What, you know, what's going on here? And I love it when Jesus doesn't answer the question, really. He, bar- he hides the answer here. And the reason he does this is because if, if, if Jesus just goes, oh, this is for everybody, his disciples go, oh, phew, well, we're kind of off the hook then, right? Because when everybody's on the hook, uh, I can figure out a way to weasel out of this. That, you know, well, that's for everybody. Well, they're a lot worse off than me. So obviously this is more about them than it is for me. And Jesus doesn't, Jesus wants them to live with the anticipation of this and, and the the weightiness of this, like we said, the urgency of this idea. Not go, well, that's for the crowd. All those guys, they're sinners out there. We're good to go. But the other side of it is this, he's not gonna say this is just for you because this is for you and for me and every person on the face of the earth. The most important question you can ask is what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? And so Jesus answers, verse 42. It says, the Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. In other words, again, who then is the wise and faithful? I'll tell you who this is for. Anyone who wants to be a faithful and wise servant. Anyone who thinks that it makes more sense to invest in eternity instead of a tiny little speck of period of time right now. Anyone that gets this, the fact that I am coming back, 
and wants to be prepared and ready. And what do, what do they do? Well, the master gives them a task, people to care for, people to watch over, a job to do. And you serve faithfully in the place where God's called you to serve. That's what you do. You serve faithfully. And he says, it will be good for those who serve faithfully in the place that God's called him, them to. Truly, I tell you, verse 44, you put, put him in charge of all his possessions. And to the one who serves faithfully where God's called him, there is an incredible reward when Jesus returns. The faithful, wise manager remembers that he is a manager. He is a servant. That the, whole, that the story isn't about him. That the stuff isn't his. That he's just called to manage his time, his talent, his resources, right? That God's given him a life, and that life belongs to God. Paul says, you've been bought with a price. If you're here and you follow Jesus, your life belongs to God. That was part of the transaction. It wasn't just pray, a simple prayer. It was the fact of, my life is yours. It's acknowledging that. My life is yours. Now, now what do you want me to do, God? What do you want me to do? Now Jesus gets to this next section. And like I said, this isn't the kinder, gentler parables of Jesus. Check this out. But suppose, the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants, mistreat people, both men and women, and to eat and drink, live it up and get drunk. Verse 46, the master of that servant will come, he's coming back, on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him with a, a place with the unbelievers. This servant has no expectancy of his master's return in this parable. Remember, this is a made-up story that, God, or that, that Jesus tells to, prove, to make a point, right? And the point is this. It is not going to go well for this servant. It is not going to go well. He begins to live for his own pleasure. He forgets that... He's a servant. Instead, he begins to treat the master stuff like it's his stuff, like I'm the owner, not just the manager, right? One time uh, we were on vacation and this friend let us stay. He had a friend that was a photographer. He let us stay in this really nice little guest house and for free. And so my son was only 18 months old at, at the time. And he was a messy little boy, right? As most all of them are at that, at that age, it's a hard time to go on vacation. And we're, we're on vacation with him. And we literally set up like a station on the floor next to a wall because we didn't want him to destroy, you know, because we, wanted, we knew it wasn't ours. We wanted to take such good care of it. And this, and this guy starts to think it's all, it's all our, it's all about me. The story's about me. It's for my pleasure. It's for my enjoyment. And what inevitably happens when you start living for yourself is you begin to hurt other people, right? You begin to wound other people that you've been called to care for. And the scripture shows how God feels about this. Now, there's all sorts of theological questions that this little parable um, raises, and I don't have time to get into them all here today. But let me just say this, when it comes to this, because it's a sobering passage, it's like, whoa, Jesus, that's pretty intense. 
Here's, here's the thing that you need to wrestle with. For someone who there's no remorse or no repentance over sin, ongoing sin without you know, remorse or repentance, there's no love or affection for God whose life shows consistently that they're all about themselves and living for their own pleasure and who in the process hurt and damage other people. Man, a good question to ask is, am I really a follower of Jesus? That's the necessary question to ask. Paul says in one point, test yourselves and see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? His Holy Spirit lives in you, unless indeed you fail the test. In other words, if your life shows no fruit ever, Jesus talks about this too, the vine and the branches. If your life shows no fruit and it's all about you, just because you go to church, that should not be a, a big comforting thing to you. This should be a sobering thing. You should really stop and evaluate your life and whether or not you really are a follower of Jesus. Verse 47. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much more will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. It's heavy, isn't it? It's a heavy scripture. And the point Jesus is making is you are accountable for what God has entrusted you with. You are accountable, especially, here's the hard thing. Like, if you're like me and you grew up in church, you've done this a while. You know a lot of stuff, right? And it's easy for us to come in and learn and pack our brains and geek out on stuff and learn more and more and go, oh, wow, that was so interesting, right? And then never actually apply it. You know, the hard part is application. The hard part is putting it into practice, which is why James says, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. Which is why Jesus says, um, be like the wise men who builds a house upon the rock. If you're, not, if, you're, if you're like someone who just hears the words and doesn't do anything about it, you're like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. Application is the hard part, isn't it? And so the question I want you to wrestle with this week, and I know this is a heavy message, right? So we're diving back into Luke verse by verse. I'm like, oh man, I, it'd be nice to have a light passage. One of those fun narratives where we, you know, I get to, you know, talk about the disciples or Zacchaeus or something, you know, one of those fun ones. And no, it's pretty heavy, pretty heavy. But the question really to wrestle with this week is this. How would it change you if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? How would it change you? What are you doing with what he has entrusted you with? Your time, your, your treasure, your talents? What are you doing with that? How are, how are you taking care of or stewarding those he's called you to care for? How are you doing when it comes to living for your own pleasure versus living to serve his kingdom and his purposes? And see, the hard part for us is this. It's 2,000 years later, right? 2,000 years later. And for so many, they've become just sort of callous to the truth that he's coming back and you don't know when. This is the truth. He's coming back 
And you don't know when, but it's like, yeah, but it's been 2,000 years, you know. When you read the New Testament, you can't help but see that they all have this imminent readiness and expectation. He could come back any minute. We don't know when. Why? They really heard him when he said this. In fact, Peter, who asked that question just a minute ago, in, in, one of the, in the second letter he wrote to the churches that we have in, in our scriptures called Second Peter, he says this, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following after their own evil desires. Are we in the last days? Yes. They said they were in the last days. We are in the laster last days than they are. Are we in the very last last days? I don't know. Okay. But we are in the last days. Scoffers will come following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. Like, you can't believe, you really believe he's coming back? It's been 2,000 years. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. These things just keep rolling, natural processes, nothing changes. You can't really be serious. You don't really believe that. Peter says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And he goes on to say, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That he will come back. He closes the section by saying this, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, that he will come again and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So the question is really, how would you... How would it change you if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? Because he could. He might. Are you ready? And the point that Jesus is bringing up in the scriptures, when you live in the light of the soon and imminent return of Jesus, you don't postpone faithfulness. You don't think, I'll get to serving God later. I'll follow Jesus. I'll make a decision to follow Jesus later. You're faithful in the moment to what he's called you to. You're faithful. You deal with the stuff he calls you to deal with. This isn't just like the, the bumper sticker. Some of you saw the bumper sticker. Um, look, Jesus is coming. Look busy. Remember seeing that around? Jesus is coming. Look busy. Like, oh, no. no, that's not the point. Right? Don't just look busy. The point is that we are, at, we are faithful in what he's called us to. I'm just going to close with this little story. In May 19, 1780, there was an event, you can look it up if you want to. It's called New England's Dark Day. And this event refers to an event that occurred uh, when the unusual darkening of the sky, this is from Wikipedia, was observed over New England states and parts of Canada. The primary cause of this event is believed to have been a combination of smoke from forest fires and a thick fog and a dense cloud cover. The darkness was so complete that candles were required from noon on and it did not disperse until the middle of the next day. Can you imagine that? Now remember, this is before they had TV and the internet. They couldn't just pop on and look at the news and find out, oh, okay, this is only in our area. Everybody's fine. They literally thought this could be the end of the world. The sun had been darkened for a matter of days and then 
everything goes black and they're freaking out. You would be too. And the Connecticut legislature was meeting at this time and there was a guy, a Christian man there named Abraham Davenport. And they asked him, what should we do? What should we do? You know, should we all go home? Should we cancel? And he said this, this may well be the day of judgment which the world awaits, but be it so or not, I know only my present duty and my Lord's command to occupy till he come. So at the post where he has set me in his providence, I chose for one to meet him face to face. No faithless servant frightened from my task, but ready when the Lord of the harvest calls. Therefore, with all reverence, I would say, let God do his work. We will see to ours. Bring in the candles. And that's what they did. And the point behind this is this, that I want you, I want to live in such a way, and, and I want you as someone who wants to follow Jesus today in life community, I want you to live in such a way to, to be able to say, I am living my life in such a way that if I knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, I could still say, I'm doing what God called me to do. Bring it on. We're waiting. We're ready. And I hope that's true of your life. I hope that's true of your life, but I'm guessing there's some of you that need to make some adjustments. How are you doing? How are you living? And as we close, and if you want to stand, let me just say this. If you're here and you've never embraced what Jesus did for you in the first place, you've never put your faith and trust in him, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to walk out of the doors and go, man, I better get my act together. That was heavy, right? And so I, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to make sure I'm in church every weekend and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop kicking the dog. Um, you should probably <laughs> stop doing that, but, you know. But that's not, what, that's not the point here. The point is for you to be ready for Jesus' return, you need to embrace what he did when he died for you and he rose again. You cannot do it. Paul calls it, it's the free gift of God. It's not about you getting your act together. You can't make yourself right before God. You need to embrace what he's done for you. Ask him for forgiveness and then allow the Holy Spirit to begin to transform your life. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you need to cooperate with the work of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life if you're resisting him in some way. And so if, if that's you in the room and you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus, let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. And if you want to take that step of faith of following him, you can pray a prayer like this after me, quietly or, or out loud, either way. Lord Jesus, I need you. I can't make it to God on my own. I believe you died and rose again so that I can have eternal life. I embrace and put my full trust in what you did for me. Forgive me. I want to live my life for you. Welcome me into your kingdom. In Jesus' name. And Lord, for all my other friends, I pray that you just bless them here. You would show them how this applies to them. Thank you for preserving these words, Lord. Would, you, would we live with the urgency that you call us to live with? Lord, we love you. And we lift your name up. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.